Welcome to The Earth Wants You. I'm Savitri D. with Reverend Billy. And The Earth Wants You is a production of The Church of Stop Shopping. We're here in Brooklyn, New York, here at the end of January. What has happened? Quite a weekend, Savi. That's right. We were on the street a lot. Can you hear it in Billy's voice there? On Saturday, we were out with Extinction Rebellion, New York City, uh, the inaugural event by that group here. And then on Monday, immigration, resistance to ICE at the Foley Square, just a few blocks away. That's right. Ravi Ragbir, who we've talked to and uh, whose story we've covered quite a bit on this show, as mm-hmm. he is a member of our community, uh, was asked to check in uh, by ICE on Monday. And uh, we had some I said, fear, I guess, that he would be detained on Monday, but uh, he wasn't. He walked away, for which we're all grateful. We're grateful for that. He's with <laughs> us. He's with us for a while. Yeah. Extinction and immigration. That was the that was the that was the weekend. Definitely, definitely uh, issues that are two sides of the same coin. Yeah, two d- very different bodies of people here in New York. At least I know in some places those communities overlap more, but here in New York, uh, Extinction Rebellion, uh, younger people, I would say, whiter people, uh, the environmental people of the city. Um, and uh, some, fam- got to change. some families were out uh, and some colorful props. Uh, we took our golden toad heads and uh, got those out of storage and spruced them up with some fresh paint and some gold flecks in the eyes. And uh, well, that it was it was wonderful, though. We, we left from uh, the Plaza Hotel and marched down Fifth Avenue, mirroring almost perfectly the action we did on By Nothing Day just a couple of months ago uh, with a few more people. We've gone that route many times. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Back across. Yeah. Many by nothing days. Yeah. By nothing days were parades down Fifth Avenue. Uh, but it was great to be with a group of people talking about extinction. It's, we've talked about that for so long, and it 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 is a an issue whose time has long passed since come. And the Brazilians. The Brazilians were very much there defending their rainforest. That's right. Bolsonaro continues his attack on indigenous people in Brazil, and he is already uh, facing allegations of fraud and corruption. So, <clears throat> Is that right? I didn't know that. Just today. Already? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's corrupt ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And our action on Monday was a solidarity action as well with no more deaths, no mas muertes in Arizona. Um, Which we who will interview today. will join us on the radio in just a few minutes. Very good. So stay tuned. The Earth wants you. Let's go to some music. Yeah. Man, that's, that, that's the solution. Check it out. Now I'm done. I want to 
Music solves everything, doesn't it, on some level? Yes, it does. I think that there's a reason that we have to keep singing while we do our political direct action, you know, as we risk arrest. That's right. That's as right. we accept the handcuffs and go to jail. Keep singing. Let the civil rights movement teach us. Yeah, we, Nehemiah and I changed the words from, uh, and before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave. We changed it to a, uh, and before they build a, oh, hmm, I can't remember now. Hmm. And in, before they build a wall, we'll be standing proud and tall, something like that. That rhymes perfect. <laughs> Sorry, that was a really useless cul-de-sac of non-information. Well, Let's go to the news. I think it was good radio. <laughs> At least I can read that. The news from the natural world. Welcome, listeners. This is Savitri D. with News from the Natural World. An international study looked at the incidence of land and marine food shocks, that's sudden losses in food production, between 1961 and 2013. The research identified 226 food production shocks across 134 nations over the 53-year period, noting an increasing frequency of shocks across all sectors on a global scale. Lead author Richard Cottrell said extreme weather was a major cause of food shocks to crops and livestock, highlighting the vulnerability of food production to climate and weather volatility. In recent decades, we have become increasingly familiar with images in the media of disasters such as drought and famine around the world, he said. Our study confirms that food production shocks have become more frequent, posing a growing danger to global food production. Mm The U.S. Department of Energy revealed on Wednesday that it secretly shipped weapons-grade plutonium from South Carolina to a nuclear security site in Nevada months ago, despite the state's protests. 
Okay. On Wednesday, 25 mothers who have traveled with their disabled children from Kerala's northern district, this is in India, Kerala, India, Kerala, Kerala's northern district of Kasargad to state capital, I'm going to give it a go, Thiruvannathapuram. Nearly 600 kilometers away, will start a hunger strike in front of the Secretariat demanding justice for the victims of endosulfan poisoning. People living in more than 20 panchayats in Kasargad district were exposed to the insecticide and endosulfan, a highly potent neurotoxin, between 1975 and 2000, when the public sector Plantation Corporation of Kerala sprayed the chemical aerially on its 12,000-acre cashew estates. Okay, you got that, people. Endosulfan sprayed from airplanes between 1975 and 2000. Its residues spread far and wide via wind and rain, leaving a trail of destruction in the district and neighboring regions of Karnataka. Karnataka. In in the region Karnataka, killing more than 1,000 people. It poisoned more than 6,000 people. Thousands of children were born with congenital disabilities, hydrocephalus, diseases of the nervous system, epilepsy, cerebral palsy, and severe physical and mental disabilities. The mothers of these children are going on a hunger strike. The Plantation Corporation of Kerala stopped spraying endosulfan in 2001, but its impact is still being felt. Babies continue to be born with genetic disorders and physical deformities. Well, now, you, you described a 25-year period. There's 75 to 2,000. It's a highly disruptive chemical. It gets inside the system and clearly uh, mutates the genetic s- systems. I 25 mean, years of spraying. 25 years of spraying, and, uh, of course, uh, those people were children, and now they're having babies. There you go. Sea stars along the Pacific coast are dying in the largest disease epidemic ever documented in a wild marine species. New research suggests warmer water is making the disease even more deadly. Thailand's Ministry of Education have ordered all schools in Bangkok and some surrounding provinces to close for the remainder of the week amid concerns over dangerous levels of air pollution. A wide-ranging ban on microplastics covering about 90% of pollutants has been proposed by the EU in an attempt to cut 400,000 tons of plastic pollution in 20 years. That's not nearly enough. Jorgen Randers, a Norwegian academic who decades ago warned of a potential global catastrophe caused by overpopulation has changed his mind. The world population will never reach 9 billion people, he now believes. It will peak at 8 billion in 2040 and then decline. Demographers at Vienna's International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis predict the human population will stabilize by mid-century and then start to go down. A Deutsche Bank report has the planetary population peaking at 8.7 billion in 2055 and then declining to 8 billion by century's end. Women must have 2.1 babies on average for a population to remain stable. The fertility rate in the UK is 1.7. Most population growth in the UK today is the result of international immigration. China, the world's largest country, has a fertility rate of 1.5, lower than Britain's India, soon to overtake China as the world's most populous nation, is at the replacement rate of 2.1 and falling. Brazil, the fifth most populous country, has a fertility rate of 1.8. So you see from these numbers, 
Are there different explanations in different countries? or, or? It's almost always urbanization and literacy. Yeah, the, co- the county that encompasses Seattle, Washington has approved a six-month moratorium on any new major fossil fuel infrastructure. It's only six months, but still it seems like such a victory. Young people, more likely to have depression at 18 if exposed to dirtier air at age 12. All right. Yeah, watch Lean out all those on. kids in Thailand right now. Legislation that would create criminal charges for impeding fossil fuel facilities and pipelines during protests is back in the Wyoming legislature. Similar in scope to bills introduced in state houses across the country following the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, the Crimes Against Critical Infrastructure Bill was written with numerous fixes to address questions raised by that earlier version, which would have made it a crime to purposefully obstruct the construction of critical infrastructure like pipelines. Uh, the new bill does almost nothing to, to alter that and still is uh, widely seen as impeding First Amendment rights and making some very confusing laws for landowners as well. It'll be stopped by the courts. Certainly. A California judge on Monday upheld protection for gray wolves under the state's Endangered Species Act, rejecting a legal challenge from ranchers and farmers who fear the predators will threaten their livestock. I should let you know that there's really, as far as we know, only three wolves have even been in the state of California in a hundred years, so watch out. A new study shows that microplastics are affecting the ability of mussels to attach themselves to their surroundings. Mussels, the creature that lives in the sea that we sometimes eat not the ones on your arms or legs thank uh, you thank you, thank you. <laughs> but so they can't attach themselves this has a devastating impact on ocean ecosystems as well as a worldwide food industry a new study of baffin islands glaciers suggests that modern temperatures represent the warmest century in 115,000 years and Arctic summers are at the hottest temperature for 115,000 years. The magnitude of warming is so high that everything is melting everywhere now. Baffin Islands, you know where they are. They're west coast of, uh, of Alaska. Germany, one of the world's biggest consumers of coal, will shut down all 84 of its coal-fired power plants over the next 19 years. earth the announcement marks a significant shift for Europe's largest country, a nation that had long been a leader on cutting CO2 emissions before turning into a laggard in recent years and badly missing its targets. Coal plants account for 40% of Germany's electricity, itself a reduction from recent years when coal dominated power production. Germany has itself a long history of coal mining, mm-hmm. a whole region of coal and extraction. So. Uh, we know there's been a tremendous amount of very powerful activism against the coal industry in Germany. May I remind you of the time 1,000 Germans just climbed over everything and went down and just occupied that power plant? Was it one? I remember more than that. Wasn't it like mm-hmm. 10,000? No, it was like 1,100, I think. Okay. That's all it takes. We have 1,100 subscribers on just one of our stations here. So could... Could, could we all get together and just go stop a... Come on, guys, let's, let's go. Let's just walk over to that let's coal... Let's go. Coal fire power I'm going. Plant. Here I'm we go. Going. All right. I'm going. You're going to finish... I'm going. going to finish the I'm show? Going. <laughs> I'm going. That's it. That's the end of the news. I thought I'd end on a happy note because they're just... It's all so extreme and... Wow. 
Well, things, it's hard to say that things are getting better. They're not. But once in a while, there's something, some individual thing, some isolated thing that cheers the soul. Well, and also just the knowledge that things change in dynamic ways. Let's know that. So that could be very destructive and it could also be very productive or or helpful or healthful, I should say. Our listeners might be reminded what dynamic change would look like. So I could, for six months, I could practice the piano day after day after day and see no change in my playing. Mm-hmm. And on the second day of February at 3 p.m., I could sit down and my playing could be dramatically better. You could be suddenly playing Rachmaninoff's third concerto. Well, let's not get out of control, but certainly that would be an example of dynamic change or how a child who seemingly grows an inch overnight or learns to read in what seems like one day. This is dynamic change. So for our activist friends out there, just continuing to do the activism, doing the work day in and day out as we have been, there's something encouraging in the, the idea of dynamic change, which is the, that is how change takes place in nature. That is, the, that, is the, that is the example that Gaia gives us. Sure, and as we know from studies released in, over the last year, it's one in four is how we change social perceptions, right? So a tipping point in um, a society or a community is one in four. So as soon as one in four people support gay rights, the whole culture can tip. But we are not there yet on climate or earth justice. And We're going to do that with this podcast. That's right. That's right. Come on, gonna people. Reach, Join reach, us. Reach lots of folks. And right now, uh, we're going to call up Paige with No More Deaths in Arizona. The mission of No More Deaths is to end death and suffering in the Mexico-U.S. borderlands through civil initiative, people of conscience working openly and in community to uphold fundamental human rights. No More Deaths maintains a year-round humanitarian presence in the deserts of southwestern Arizona. They work in the remote corridors into which migration has been pushed, where people are walking 30 to 80 miles. Volunteers hike the trails and leave water, food, socks, blankets, and other supplies. Under the direction of medical teams, volunteers provide emergency first aid tri- treatment to individuals in distress. And Amordes has been working uh, really for decades and uh, is part of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Tucson, uh, but includes a wide range of uh, volunteers and activists. And I'm very pleased today to have Paige Court climb on the phone. Hi, Paige. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. We usually start by asking our guests um, to tell us about your favorite place on Earth. Cool. Um, my favorite place on Earth is a place called uh, Punchbowl Falls in Oregon. It's in the Columbia River Gorge, and it's like a mile and a half hike in to this really cool waterfall um, that has a big swimming hole at the bottom of it, and it actually burned down um, about a year and a half ago, and I haven't been there since, but um, growing up, I went there a lot, and I have taken a lot of friends there and had some good times. Those are beautiful forests in Oregon. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so for our listeners who don't know, can you just talk about uh, what No More Deaths does, what you are as an organization, 
and and just a little a brief background, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so No More Deaths is a humanitarian aid organization based in southern Arizona, and our mission is to end death and suffering in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. And we were founded in 2004 um, by people who used to be involved in the sanctuary movement, so folks who in uh, during the dirty wars in Central America were helping smuggle people across the border. Um, they saw a big increase in the number of people that were dying while crossing into the U.S., and most of those deaths were from heat exhaustion, dehydration, and so um, they decided to start putting food and water um, out on known migrant trails and also providing medical care to people that they came across. Um, so we've been doing that ever since for about 15 years now. Right. So there's a pretty engaged network of people who do that work along the border. But I would say that at the moment, especially No More Deaths is really doing the critical work because, as we know, that work is being criminalized. So uh, we've talked about this a number of times on our show, but I'd love to just give a really clear background of what happened. The the exposure of the Border Patrol and their destruction of uh, caches of water and food, and then what happened to No More Deaths as a, well, as a possible result of that. Yeah, so um, we have an abuse documentation team that we've just been writing down stories and collecting data on abuses of migrants, mostly in custody. But our current uh, report series is called Disappeared. And it has three parts, and the first part was on deadly apprehension methods, so talking about Border Patrol scattering people, chasing them off cliffs, um, just the really deadly practices that they um, carry out while apprehending people. And part two was released a little bit over a year ago, and it was about destruction of humanitarian aid supplies. So we tracked a bunch of data from our logbooks, um, about three years of data, I believe, and looked at... um, destruction and where that was occurring, how often it was occurring, if it was during hunting season. Um, We looked at a bunch of different factors and kind of came out with the conclusion that the only possible actor that could be responsible for such widespread destruction was Border Patrol. Um, And while we, when we released that report, we also released um, video footage that we've taken over five years that captured, we kind of hid trail cameras that were motion sensor activated, and we actually caught Border Patrol um, destroying our, our water and food and removing blankets in the winter. Um, and so we published all of this, and the video went viral. And then a couple hours later, one of our volunteers, Scott Warren, was arrested um, and charged with felony um, harboring and conspiracy. Um, and so we saw that as a pretty direct, um, directly kind of retaliatory action by Border Patrol. Um, but Apart from that, we also, um, for the past couple of years, have been working a lot more on the Cabeza Prieto National Wildlife Refuge. And um, that same winter, we had volunteers who had been out with us in the summer um, getting charged with um, misdemeanor crimes for their actions that actually occurred six months prior um, in the summer of 2017. Um, We had volunteers in Bellingham, Washington, in New Orleans, Minneapolis, and the state of Maine that all got knocked on our door and we're given charging documents um, up to six months after the fact. So um, we're kind of seeing on a lot of different fronts just kind of some backlash against our organization. Right, so Cabeza Prieta is like one of the most remote um, and wilderness areas in on the continent, really. Talk about what it looks like and feels like there. I mean, a lot of people haven't been to that kind of desert country, so maybe you could tell us what it's like there. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I spent a decent amount of time out there. I've done a couple overnight hikes to kind of traverse some of the longer stretches of land where there's just really no road access. Um, but a lot of people are familiar with the book The Devil's Highway about a group of migrants that died in 2001. And that book is written about um, things that happened on Cabeza Prieta. So just like as a baseline story, a lot of people know about border, the deaths on the border. Um, that story is actually about this area. Um, and it's kind of these, this area is extremely remote. There's very little road access. Um, and people are walking across the Cabeza Prieta about 20 miles. Um, and then as soon as they cross it, they enter onto an active bombing range. And uh, so the Air Force and the Marines own that land, and they use it for aerial practice as well as dropping bombs on small villages that they build and then proceed to destroy. Um, and a lot of that shrapnel is also present on the Cabeza Prieta Wildlife Refuge. So one of the main areas that we work in is this area called the Grommer Valley, which is this big, flat expanse, about 10 miles wide, 20 miles long, and it's just completely barren. There's creosote bushes and some trees, but it's just it's just straight desert. Um, and then you'll be walking and you'll come across a massive missile head or these big things that look like oversized, like 10-foot long paper airplanes that are built up in wood. And those are called darts, and they use them for aerial target practice when right. they fall into the wilderness. Um, wow. And there's also a lot of off-road... Um, vehicle tracks all over, so people, uh, Border Patrol drives off-road whenever they want to, so there's also just all of these roads kind of crossing the land, um, but it's really, really barren, and then also has just these deep con- contradictions of being this pristine wilderness, it's also just covered in shrapnel, so it's it's a really weird place. Right, I can imagine for a migrant, it must just be incredibly confusing, like you're walking through there, and suddenly you see these unrecognizable objects that are clearly instruments of war, but are they aimed at you? I mean, it must be terribly disorienting. Yeah, absolutely. And towards kind of the northern end as well, you, you'll hear like these really deep booms, and it's actually the sound of, of like heavy artillery and bombs being dropped. So, it's, you know, we talked about the militarization of the border, and in that area, it's extremely evident where they literally have created a war zone for practice. Okay, now I have to pause you because I have to go get my daughter. Hold on one second. Okay. Sorry. Yes, no worries. Oh, you're good. Um, Right, so why why do you help migrants? Um, I, so I am a citizen. I'm white. I grew up with a lot of privilege, um, but I speak Spanish and I have some medical training. Um, I'm able-bodied and young. and so I, I think what's happening on the border is a really grave injustice and um, kind of this manifestation of colonialism and capitalism that comes down really hard on vulnerable populations. And I have the ability to respond. So I think um, it makes sense to be out there. And I think a lot of people in our group are kind of in a similar spot where um, once you come down here and you see what's happening and you start engaging with it, it's like the more you learn, just the more enraging it is. Right. Um, when you go to the No More Deaths website, you can read some of these reports about um, the the missing people and um, the, the number of um, remains that are discovered and found in these wild lands. Um, and that must also be very sobering for you. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the first couple of years I was out here, it, it was, you know, coming across human remains and, like, coming across the bodies of people who had died wasn't wasn't as much of a reality. But as soon as we started expanding out specifically on Cabeza Prieta, um, it became almost an expectation that if we were going to walk into a place that we had never been before, that we should be prepared to find find people's bodies. And um, that's kind of continued to be true. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's a big reality check. It's, you know, it's, it's, yeah, very, it's very hard to see. And to also, um, just know that, you know, be, I think when it happens, we're thankful that we're finding people because that's the only way that they'll potentially be identified. But we mm-hmm. also know that most people don't get identified. I don't think most people understand um, the consequences you face in Arizona uh, just for helping migrants either. I don't think they understand that like you just providing um, material support in any way is essentially a crime in Arizona. Is that correct? Yeah. And I think, I mean, it seemed like for a while the federal government was trying to kind of crack down everywhere, but we've definitely seen it a lot in Arizona. Um, especially towards our volunteer base. And I, I think that that is related to our abuse documentation efforts and the fact that, you know, we don't back down and we name the players that are involved. We name, we place blame. We say, hey, this is this is not a random tragedy. This is the result of intentional policy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that kind of puts a target on us in some ways. And do you think that the... Uh, it- the situation is getting worse? I mean, do you see a a change in the last couple of years? Definitely. Yeah, I think under the Trump administration, there's been a big change. Um, But I think it's it's important also to kind of separate that the change is the targeting of us. Um, I think migrants have been facing similar things for a really long time, even in the Obama years, when people kind of, you know, saw him as immigrant-friendly. We also know that he, you know, deported over 2 million people. Um, But what feels different under Trump um, and is, you know, I think should give people pause is kind of this expansion to really target um, immigrant activists, but also now kind of people, people in a hyper-privileged class. Um, And I think historically that's really been an indicator of governments being emboldened and kind of taking on more authoritarian tactics. So the fact that they're starting to target our, our organization, like we don't, want to make this all about us because we're actually here to support the people who are most directly affected by this but it it definitely is um, an indicator of of some changes well you're from the northwest so you would remember uh, a similar kind of uh, criminalization of environmental activism um, particularly in the northwest but all over the country you know some people call it the green scare but um, it 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 definitely changes the nature of the activism and it must be happening in this way for immigration activists all over the country. I know it's happening here in New York with groups that we work with. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it, I, have you seen, like, does it change uh, who comes to volunteer? Because some people rise to that challenge, right? It actually Im- inspires them to work harder when they feel that resistance from the government. But um, it must certainly affect who comes down there to work with No More Deaths. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um I think we're in kind of a unique position where it's kind of this government repression has like actually elevated our work. I think there's, we've in some ways expanded because we've more people know about us. So more people are coming out to work with us. We're getting more donations. Like there are all these ways in which 
you know, we don't want the government to be targeting us, but in some ways their targeting has, like, given us power in this interesting mm-hmm. way, mm-hmm. Um, while also simultaneously really drastically changing our field work. Um, I think a lot of us kind of came out here. I know I'm kind of on this team, but people came from the environmental movement and doing, like, direct action and these kind of different campaigns that were kind of been split and what I have valued about No More Deaths is it's like, it's really direct. It's this kind of direct aid, direct action model. And we know it's impactful and it's kind of a little more steady. Mm-hmm. Like you just kind of put your head down, carry the water yeah. out, track new areas, and you just do the work. Um, but it's kind of pushed us to be, to do more media and to kind of talk more about what we're seeing out here. So yeah, it's, it's definitely not what I want to be happening. And I think we've been making the best of it. Um, I wonder if you and your community there talk a little bit about, I mean, you must talk about the future. You must talk about how um, at some point all of us will be climate migrants. You know, at some point the issue of migration will be everybody's issue, right? And I don't know how far away that is, but um, it, it's certainly something we talk about here and think about and, um, and how to connect these movements, right? So they're not separate. And um, I'm really struck. Um, I saw some imagery um Agua es vida, you know, and I was thinking water is life and in this other context, right, away from, you know, standing rock and pipelines and uh, extraction and um, to this other question of water as life. And I wonder if maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think um, I was talking to a friend about this other night. Um, he was out in Borneo um, working to shut down the the juvenile detention center there, what people were calling kind of the kid prison. Mm-hmm. And um, we ended up actually sending out a bunch of our slashed water gallons and they used them for this action that they put on. And it, it was just interesting because we were just talking about, yeah, all of the different struggles that are coming up right now from Standing Rock to Flint to Tornillo to the border. They're all centered around water. Mm-hmm. And I... I think back to like in high school and different times when I was learning about conflicts and different world wars. And I remember kind of distinctly people saying the next world war is going to be around water. And it, it feels really relevant and true, not in this kind of like massive, like historical traditional way of like a war happening, but all of these different battles really are around this core resource that is so key and precious to life. And the fact that, we are being criminalized for providing water and trying to put water in places where people are dying of thirst is just like such a, a disrespect to, to life in yeah. general. And, yeah, um, it's like the most primary thing we can do, right, is share water. And it seems to me that of yeah. all, all of the human exchanges, it probably was the first exchange on some level, mm-hmm. right? Um, other, yeah. other than maybe sexual exchange, it's like, it is that intimate and that, that, that primal. And so, um, yeah, the disruption of that basic human generosity is, is so distressing. Um, yeah. and we're so normalized around it. Right. So I mentioned this to someone yesterday and what they said back to me was, oh, but people have been fighting over water for millennia. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, that's yeah. true, but they've also been sharing water for millennia. Like, we've already normalized the fight. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's kind of another thing we talk about a lot out here is, um, you know, we're kind of this above ground, very public humanitarian aid organization, but we always talk about how actually the people who 
initially started doing humanitarian aid were the people who migrants first went up and knocked on their door. Like that, that was the initial one. And if we go back even further, it's like for the Cabeza area, it's the Tan Atum and Kyachet Atum people that have been crossing through that area for since since they've been there. And yeah, I mean they they had to share water to survive. So you know it's, it's absolutely something that's been happening since time immemorial. So another thing that's been happening a long time is uh, religious defense of belief and action, right? So I know that the RIFRA, the religious accommodation law, was brought up in the in the trial of the activists with the misdemeanors um, a couple of weeks ago, right? The RIFRA, mm-hmm. but it was rejected by the judge. Can you, um, I mean, we're not lawyers, so we don't have to get in a huge legal conversation here, but, but uh, maybe just talk a little bit about why. Uh, those activists and humanitarian aid uh, volunteers uh, brought a religious accommodation claim into the courtroom. Yeah, absolutely. So um, RIFRA is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and it passed in the mid-90s and um, kind of to accommodate, again, yeah, spiritual and religious beliefs. And the Ninth Circuit it accommodates, which is, uh, Ninth Circuit is where we are here in Arizona, it accommodates uh, spiritual beliefs. It doesn't have to be like Christianity um, Judaism, it, it's really wide. Um, and so we brought that defense just as kind of a, you know, our organization is technically a ministry of the Unitarian Universalist Church. So we are affiliated with a religious organization. Um, our membership is pretty, pretty broad, but I think uh, people in our group do feel kind of this higher calling to, to act and to do the work that we do. And you know, uh, Zuchua, one of the defendants, kind of made this statement when she was on the stand, is saying, you know, water is life. We're made of water. Uh, everything's connected. And I, uh, you know, it, it doesn't fit in the nice box that I think the court may have wanted, but it definitely was powerful and felt good to share. But, yeah, it was um, the motion to drop the charges was was denied by the judge eventually. And how did that ripple through the community? I mean, what was the response inside your community when your beliefs were sort of undermined in that way? Yeah, I mean, I think it's insulting, but it's it's also, and it's upsetting because it, you know, long-term, it just means that we're going to have to keep fighting this fight and what we're, you know, that we don't want to be fighting it out in the courtroom. We want to be in the field doing the work that we need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I, it's also, you know, I think in a lot of previous activism and projects that we've worked on, you kind of we're, you're fighting against a corporation, but in, in like a company or some group that's doing something destructive and harmful. But in our case, we're fighting against the state. Mm-hmm. We're fighting against the federal government who has created this policy of death and disappearance. And so, when then there's a judge who's part of that apparatus denies your motion to dismiss the charges, it's you know it's. You, we can't feel too surprised about it, right? Um, but it 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 sucks. I don't know. What to say. Right, it's like another line of defense that's unusable. <laughs> it's like okay, yeah, well, I guess we can't well. use that either. So now, what? How can we defend ourselves? How? Can, and the fact that we even have to defend ourselves, right, to just share yeah. water and help people live and not die, seems so incredible. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So how can we? Um, First of all, let me just ask if there are, are things in the works like th- that you think would really make a difference, like policy-wise, or um, I know you do a lot of field work there, but um, we always 
talk about how these conditions are created by terrible policy. Are there specific mm-hmm. policies that you would say today you would change or, or alter that would affect this? Yeah, I mean, I think we go back to the lines of decriminalize, decriminalize migration and demilitarize the border. Um, so kind of pushing back policies that increase enforcement on the border and pushing back policies that further criminalize migration, such as Operation Streamline, um, which charges people with criminal um, offenses instead of just civil offenses for mm-hmm. crossing the border. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those would would be positive changes, but um, it's just, you know, our immigration system has always been designed to accommodate labor needs, and it's kind of still doing that. It's not really accommodating asylum seekers and refugees, and it's kind of perpetuating white supremacy, and um, that's just historically true of what our policy has always been. So I, it's like you'd really have to kind of start from scratch because this country was founded on genocide, and mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's very, very deeply destructive. And I know that No More Deaths in general is so focused on migrants and so focused on people um, affected and in, in need. Um, so I just want to say thank you for that and and um, thank you for all the work that all of you have done over these many, many years and lives you've surely saved. Um, and I wonder how we can help you and your organization help others. Yeah, um, so... We currently have a sign-on letter to support humanitarian aid. Um, you can get to it from our Facebook, our Instagram, and our Twitter. Um, those are, if you want to kind of stay in the loop, those, we update those a lot. Um, we have an email list, and we also have an open volunteer program. So if people want to come out and work with us, um, we definitely take volunteers. Um, but I also, you know, I always encourage people also to just do work in their own community, because if we can keep people are undocumented in their community, that means they're not going to be crossing the border, and we won't need to give them water. So doing kind of anti-deportation defense and um, just look around you and figure out how you can support folks in your own community, and that's that's also a really huge one. Um, there's also there's a couple other groups that do uh, borderland search and rescue that don't always get as much funding and attention. Um, two of the ones that we often will work with are the Armadillos of the Desierto and Aquilas of the Desierto. Um, in English, that's the Eagles of the Desert and the um, Armadillos of the Desert. And they're all on Facebook, and they do really, really amazing work. So I always want to plug that plug them too because they're they're really good. So I want to thank Paige Corge Klein for being with us today. Um, and again, for all the incredible work, please send our love and solidarity to your entire community. I wish you the best with everything upcoming. And I hope Scott, you know, does okay in court. And um, please let us know if we can ever help you. And thanks so much for your time today. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Take care of yourself.
Love No Border, which uh, we sang, the Stop Shopping Choir uh, sang at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater in downtown Manhattan. And the it's based on a work song that was recorded by Alan Lomax many years ago and then taken to our modern, modern freedom fighting at the wall uh, across our southern border. It's time for Extinction's Got Talent. And today, the Florida manatee. The Florida manatee is Florida's state marine mammal, which is not its primary characteristic, I assure you. (laughs) It's a large aquatic relative of the elephant. They are grayish brown in color and have thick wrinkled skin on which there is often a growth of algae. Their front flippers help them steer or sometimes crawl through shallow water. They also have powerful flat tails that help propel them through the water. Despite their small eyes and lack of outer ears, manatees are thought to see and hear quite well. Like other grazing animals, Florida manatees play an important role in influencing the plant growth in the shallow rivers, bays, estuaries, canals, and coastal waters they call home. Manatees only have molars, which are used to grind food. As they wear down and fall out, they are replaced with new teeth. Manatees are herbivores with a diet consisting mostly of seagrasses and freshwater vegetation. Calves are born weighing between 60 and 70 pounds and measuring about 3 to 4 feet long. They nurse underwater. Manatees (laughs) only breathe through their nostrils, since while they're underwater, their mouths are occupied with eating. A manatee's lungs are two-thirds the length of its body, and they can live for up to 60 years. There are only about 6,000 wild manatees left in the Florida area. And hear the sound of the Florida manatee. Now you'll hear it above water, and then you'll hear it underwater. Listen carefully.
Thank you. That beautiful, beautiful animal. We've visited Florida uh, recently, visited my father, and the uh, manatees, they, uh, you can see a swirl in the, in the water of the canals uh, and, and uh, feel their presence as much as see. The boats have to be careful. Of course, the, the propellers are so dangerous for the manatees. So this, this, uh, this week's message, looking out across 2019, um, feeling the extinction, rebellions rise, spreading from London out to many countries. Now we're about to, to go to Australia and Extinction Rebellion is there. People rising up uh, because the big institutions are simply uh, paralyzed uh, and they just don't really treat what is happening, as they say, in a real way. They, they, they have lots and lots of children now appearing in their doorways, on their stages, in their media. Um, Greta, uh, the 14-year-old who uh, just spoke at Davos, uh, is leading a kind of children's crusade. And the yellow vests in France, uh, there are many, many uh, coalescing uprisings right now, and we may be coming into uh, a year where uh, we turn the corner and, and respond to the earth, uh, which is calling out to us in many ways the messages of the natural disasters, the messages of the, of the extinctions sweeping across the songbirds and reptiles and mammals and plants, and, uh, just 40% uh, of all living beings vanishing um, since the 70s. We, we have, that is a message from, from the earth. It feels as if something is, is in the air right now. Something is rising. We have, we, we have the chance we have the breath, we have the imagination, we have the love, we have the many different freedom struggles, many of them isolated, they have to join up. The earth invites us all to, to be together in one ecosystem of the earth and fight for, fight for life, fight for life. So I'd like to dedicate my message, a kind of prayer this this week Gaia we we hear you calling us we hear you urging us on be with us as we as we rise to life amen amen this is the earth wants you with Savitri D and Reverend Billy in New York City, a project of the Church of Stop Shopping, our producer Killian Sinderman, and many thanks to No More Deaths. Have a great week. <laughs>